If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Jonah. That's where we're going to be this morning. This is actually going to be our last week in the Old Testament. Um, we've been working through the Old Testament this semester, uh, really trying to get the, the idea of um, how, how is the story of Scripture, instead of being a disjointed uh, bunch of moralistic stories given to us, really one big unfolding story of God's revelation to us. And what I mean by that is, is we tend to say, oh, you know, look, let's look at, let's look at a particular story. Let's look at the, the story of uh, uh, David and Goliath. And if we, if we look at that, David's this great hero. And if we have faith like David, we'll be these amazing Christians. And life's going to be amazing. And, you know, we just need to have more faith. And, and what ends up happening, and, and not that we can't take things like that away from it, but what ends up happening is you start binding yourself up with things you need to do. And you start saying, oh, okay, here's the standard I need to live to. Here's the standard I need to live to. Two problems with that. One, the standard that God sets is a lot higher than David. That's, that's one problem. So, so if you set your standard out to be, I want to be like David, or I want to be like Daniel, or, or I'm going to be like Abraham, or I'm going to be like Moses, well, the, you're already starting off on the wrong foot because God sets a much higher standard than that. But you also miss out on the fact that the hero of those stories is not a man at all, but it's actually God himself. That, that God frequently throughout the scriptures puts men and women in situations that they are unable to perform on their own and then God comes through and rescues them. And it often is, a, is, a, is c- accompanied with a promise in some way of something God has promised to do to his people, to the ones that love him, to the ones that claim that he is the true God. And that through knowing him... And through trusting him, they get to see God's faithfulness put on display. So like in the story of David and Goliath, the true hero of that story is the fact that God used this little boy, David, to rescue God's people who were being oppressed by the Philistines. Yeah, David's a hero, but God's ultimately the one that orchestrated everything. That David's faith was solely ignited because of the past faithfulness of God that he had seen. It wasn't like David woke up this morning and was like, I think I'm going to trust God more today. No, he woke up that morning and said, I've seen God save me from lions. I've seen God save me from bears. I've seen and heard the stories of God's deliverance of my people throughout the course of Scripture. I know of God's faithfulness. I know who my God is. I'm going to trust him and see him, and I'm going to trust that he is going to act on my behalf. And in that faithfulness and in that belief in God's goodness, David acts, and we see the response that he slays Goliath. Right? And so the hero of that story is not David, but is God himself. And so as I've mentioned throughout this fall, if you guys have been hanging out with us at all, I, I, we're going to look at the story of Jonah this morning. And this is one that I've mentioned in the past as being a particular book of the Bible or a story of the Bible that I think if, if once your parents one day and you're thinking, okay, what do I want to do to teach my children about the truths about who God is? How can I know more about him? This is one of those stories where if you have a children's Bible, I recommend opening it up, going and finding the story of Jonah and then reading that story and seeing what the author of that particular children's Bible says occurs in this story. Because what often happens, as I've said in the past, is we see Jonah, and, and, and this is kind of how it goes. And some, some of you guys, if you grew up in Sunday school, your story may be similar to mine. You go in there, and you're, you're, you're ready for story time, and you sit down, and the teacher's like, okay, guys, we're going to learn about Jonah today. Right? And Jonah was uh, God's messenger. And being God's messenger, he disobeyed God and went and got on the ship and sailed in the opposite direction and didn't do what God wanted him to do. Right? And guess what happened to him? Because he disobeyed, he was thrown in the water and swallowed by a fish. And then they stop. And they're like, you need to obey God or a fish will eat you. Right? And as any like great five, six, seven, eight-year-old is, what do you do in that situation? <gasps> you know, you, you stare back at the teacher like, so this is how the, the God of love works? Right? He... Those that disobey him, he has them thrown off a ship and swallowed by a fish, right? Because what they take out of the story is they take the moralistic imperative of Jonah's disobedience and they make that the theme of the story. When in fact, if you read all four chapters of the book of Jonah, it's not even close to being the theme of the story. The, The theme of the story of the book of Jonah is actually a story of God's faithfulness to the Gentile people of Nineveh. It's actually not even about Jonah at all. As a matter of fact, Jonah's kind of an idiot. 
and not kind of an idiot, he's a huge idiot. Throughout the entire book of Jonah, I don't think there's maybe more than like four verses where you're like, yeah, Jonah's doing what he's supposed to be doing here. This is good, right? Jonah's someone I should look after. And so what we're going to see this morning as we look at this story is, is kind of two things. We're going to see God's message to Jonah and why that's important. But then we're also going to see more importantly, God's faithfulness to the unbelievers of Nineveh and his faithfulness to making sure that they get the message that Jonah is going to give them. Because that is the underlying theme of the entire book of Jonah, is that God is faithful to people who will repent towards him, and there's nothing someone else can do to prevent that from happening. So let's go over to the text, and let's take a look at it. We're going to kind of be jumping around. We're not going to spend a ton of time in in the later chapters of Jonah, and we're going to kind of jump around a little bit, because I know most of us are familiar with this story. But one of the things that's interesting is I actually had Derek read from Hebrews chapter 1 this morning to to make us think long and hard about who Jonah even was and what's going on there, right? Like Hebrews chapter 1 says that that God has spoken to us in many ways in the past and through the prophets of old, but now he speaks to us through his son. And so when the author of Hebrews is saying that, and he says that God spoke to us in many ways in the past, he's talking about guys like Jonah, right? That Jonah was a prophet for the nation of Israel, much like Isaiah was when we looked at that a couple weeks ago, or someone like Ezekiel, or maybe even Daniel, that God would use specific men or women at various times throughout the history of Israel to communicate the truth about who God is and who they are in light of who God is. And so there would be a need for God to step up and say, hey Israel, here's what's going on in our present situation. Here's what God has to say about it. We need to respond. We need to, we need to repent. We need to respond. We need to love God. Whatever, whatever it may be, but we need to respond and do what God has asked of us. So these prophets would do this over and over again. And this was Jonah's job. Jonah's job was to hear from God and then take it to the people of Israel, or really, in reality, anyone that God would ask for him to meet. And so you look at verse 1, and this is what's going on in Jonah's life at this time. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so let me give you guys a couple like real quick notes and like semi-interesting things in the scripture, and this is why Bible study is fairly important if you want to understand context and what's going on here. So Jonah literally means dove in the Old Testament. Now, when we think of dove, if I stop there and say, well, okay, what do you guys think of when you think dove, right? We think peace, love, joy, happiness. Okay, dove in Hebrew, though, actually meant silly or foolishness, right? It's kind of like, anybody ever seen that movie Mars Attacks? Right? Okay, like five of you, because it came out in the 90s. Some of you guys weren't even alive, I think, when that movie came out. It's uh, kind of a bad movie, but kind of a good movie at the same time. Right? And, and there's this moment in the movie. That, I'm getting this really bad, apparently. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's really funny. Okay, so there's this moment in the movie, though, right, where the Martians land on Earth, and they're, they're, they have this, like, weird translator to talk to the Martians, and, like, the, the American military standing there, and, like, there's all these people that are, like, really excited about the Martians landing, and everyone's super happy, and they're like, we come in peace, and everyone's happy, and so a couple of Americans release doves, right? Well, doves to Martians mean a declaration of war, and the Martians begin attacking everybody, and that's when the movie actually, like, really starts spiraling out of control to make no sense, but it's still funny, Okay. This is like one of those moments where you see this and you're like, oh, like Jonah's name means dove. Like, isn't that great? You know, like, isn't that awesome? And yet, the idea of him being named that in this story is to let us know, like, this guy's kind of foolish. Like, he has no idea what he's doing most of the time. He's really silly. And yet, right, he's called in this passage the son of Amittai, which means son of my faithfulness or son of God's faithfulness. And so even in this first verse of the book of Jonah, Right? The author is communicating two things to us. 
Jonah's a fool and God is faithful. <laughs> that even in the names of the, the, the Hebrew names that are mentioned here in the text, hey, Jonah is a fool, but God is faithful to the end. That God will be faithful to whoever he wants, and he will be faithful to Jonah throughout the course of this story. And so God, you know, as we saw there in the text, God says, okay, Jonah, I got a message for you. You're my prophet. I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell them that they are living in open rebellion and sin towards me. It says there in the text that the evil of Nineveh had come up before God, right? And so that, that he wanted Jonah to go and speak to them and say, hey, look, call out against their sin. Now, Nineveh is like around where modern-day Baghdad is, maybe like maybe a, a couple hundred miles away. So they, these two locations are not close to each other, right? Uh, modern-day Iraq, Baghdad, Nineveh, that area would be about roughly 500 miles northeast of Israel. And so you're talking about a pretty serious trip. I mean, you're talking about a trip to, to, from here to somewhere probably in southern Virginia or North Carolina at this point. So a, a pretty hefty trip, even by car. And God's saying, hey, I want you to walk there. It's going to take you a couple months. I want you to get to Nineveh. I got some words for them. Okay. Now, Jonah in his infinite wisdom, says this, as he's, as he's talking to him, says like, God can't be right on this one. I know the people of Nineveh, and they are losers. Culturally, they sacrifice babies. They only care about wealth and profit. Um, they are part of the people that oppress us and, and come after us and try to conquer us. I'm not, I'm not interested in going to Nineveh. Like, God is nuts. If I go to Nineveh, I'll probably get killed. I'm an Israelite. If I step into that city and start saying to them, hey, God sent me to talk to you guys and tell you that you need to repent of your sin, I'll probably just get killed. And even if I do go there and I don't get killed, I don't want those people responding to God. They deserve to be punished for the way that they have acted and treated our people over the course of the last couple hundred years. And so you have, right, God in his mercy looking at a group of people that are not Israelites saying, I want you to go to them and proclaim to them that I'm willing to forgive them if they repent. And you have Jonah saying, God, I think you messed this one up. I, I'm not going to do this, right? It reminds me a lot of that, that series of passages in the book of Matthew where Jesus reveals that he's the Messiah and then Peter confirms, he's like, yes, I know you are, you are Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. I know who you are. In and, and this is like one of those great passages of scripture because there's like bad theology that gets pulled out of that passage all the time. Like, oh, Peter was the first pope. Well, that's interesting because if that's the case— Right? And the rock is Peter. He both gets called the rock and Satan in about eight verses. Right? What's actually going on there is that Jesus is talking to Peter. He's like, hey, you get this. You're right. I am, I am the son of the living God. Right? But then Peter immediately afterwards gets it all wrong and tries to take Jesus aside. He's like, Jesus, I don't think you understand who the Messiah is supposed to be. Let me, let me correct you. Let's open up the scriptures right now. I know they're all about you, um, but let, let me just show you where you're wrong about who you are and what's going on. It's kind of what Jonah's doing here. Right? The word of the Lord has come to Jonah, and he's like, Jonah, go to Nineveh. He's like, I think you're wrong about the Ninevites. There's got to be someone here in Israel that you need me to go meet with. Maybe the Levites, you know, maybe I need to go talk to the priesthood. Maybe you need me to, to, to head east across the Jordan River and talk to some of the tribes that are living on that side of the river. But you can't be right about me needing to go to this particular people group. And so what's he do? He heads in the exact opposite direction to a place called Joppa, which is a port city on the Mediterranean. And he hops in a boat heading for this unknown island location of Tarshish. The exact opposite direction of where he's supposed to go. And in his mind, he's saying, uh, I can escape this task that God has given me. Pretty foolish. Like, let me, let me guys just like give you a hint right here. If you're here this morning and you're, you're new to walking with the Lord or you're, you're like, ah, I don't know much about the God of the Bible. I want to know a little bit more about him. Okay. Um, this is going to be really, really simple theology right here. You can't hide from God. 
I, I know that might be earth shattering for some of you guys in here this morning, right? But think about this from just a philosophical perspective for a second, right? If God is God by definition, right? And he made the entire known universe as we know it out of nothing. Do you really think a guy getting on a boat heading in the opposite direction of where he told you to go is something that's going to bother him? Like, I think about, like, supernovas, um, all the different things we know about what's going on out in uh, the universe, right? Jo Jonah's decision to try to run from God here is not really something that's going to be difficult for God to have to deal with in this particular situation. And so Jonah, in his infinite wisdom, takes off and gets on this boat. And this is the part of the story where most of the time we start getting things wrong. And we start missing the point of what's going to happen, right? Look at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And so this is where people are kind of like, Oh, this is the part of the story where we see God's really angry at Jonah. And we see that, that God's going to punish Jonah for his disobedience because he's heading in the opposite direction. Okay. There is some of that to be pulled out here, but if you don't read the context of the entire next chapter of what's happening here, you miss out on what God is actually doing. Okay. How many of you guys, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, have ever found yourself in a season where you knew you were in open rebellion to something that God was asking you to do? Okay. I was, like, I was like, we're not going to get a single hand in here. I'm, I'm in a room of perfect people for a minute. Okay, so some of you guys know what I'm talking about at this point. Okay, here, here is what often happens in those situations, right? Either you're in, you're, because sin, typically sin is connected with it, okay? When, because sin is deceptive and full of lies and, and, and breeds and allows you to, to live in darkness and hiding, what often happens is, is in the midst of those seasons— where you're in open rebellion, like Jonah, you can't even see the way out. And so you start digging yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into these, these holes and these patterns of sin. Right? I've seen this now over the course of 10 years of being in ministry, right? in multiple ways, right? Some people, it's, a, it's an addiction to some sort of like drug or alcohol or um, pornography. Um, other people, it's a, a relationship. They, they know that that relationship is not godly and the way they're living is not godly. And they, they continue to live in open rebellion towards it because they can't see a way out of it. And they may even have people and communities surrounded around them being like, what are you doing? Like, hey, like, I know you've been a Christian for a while. I know, I know that God has made it clear to you that, that what you're doing is wrong. Like, don't you think you should walk out of this? And like, you may in that moment, like, acknowledge, like, yeah, there's some truth in this. I'm going to respond to this. Yeah, yeah, I've got this. I'm going to respond. And then yet not actually do so. And most of the time in my experience in ministry over the years, what usually has to happen is God does something drastic to grab a hold of your attention to snap you out of it. Right? Whether it's causing a breakup in the relationship in a huge way, right? Losing a job because of the addiction to alcohol or drugs, failing out of school because of the decisions that you're making. I've seen the full gamut of things that people and situations find themselves in. And unfortunately, it takes going into the depths of despair before oftentimes grab, God can grab our attention out of ignorance and ignoring him and so some of us read this we're like but god's like really harsh do you think god would have caused something so crazy to happen if jonah hadn't been so stubborn and bullheaded in the first place right the guy was talking to the god of the universe and knew exactly what god wanted him to do and yet what did he do he chose to directly disobey and head in the opposite direction even though he was talking with This is why some people sometimes are like, I need to know the will of God. Like, like if God could just Snapchat me, 
right? What he wants from my life, right? I know I would do it. And I always, I always caution people. I'm like, be careful because if God tells you something to do and you don't want to do it, you're going to be in some trouble, right? Be, be careful heading in that direction. And so what God does here is he causes this huge storm to come across what's going on to throw the people that are around Jonah in that situation into a panic and force him to face the reality of what he's done. The same way that if you are addicted to alcohol or drugs and you want to save your marriage, you have to face what you're walking in that moment and deal with it. The same way that if you're about to lose your job because of the way you're living or what you're doing, you must face that situation and turn from it or be faced with the consequences of it. God brings sovereignly Jonah to this situation where he must deal with the sins and the decisions that he's made at this point. And so he gets woken up, right? The, the mariners, the, the, the captain of the ship heads down into the bottom of the ship. He's like, dude, what is going on? There's this huge storm going on. It's breaking up the ship, and you're down here asleep while we're throwing cargo off the ship to try to survive. Pr- call out to your God. Maybe your God will hear us. Because as we're praying up on the deck to our other gods, nothing's happening at this point. We can't, we can't, get, we can't get anything to happen. We're, we're all going to die. Now, Typically, we view the situation, we're like, well, God's angry. He's punishing Jonah. Even the crew believes that they're being punished by God for some reason. But pay attention to the flow and the outcome of the story because it actually has more to do with God's faithfulness to Nineveh that this storm has come up than it does with Jonah's disobedience. So the next part of the story we're all pretty familiar with, so I'm going to fly through it. Throw up Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 for me. You can read along in chapter 1, but I'm going to just fly through kind of like what the next series of events are. So Jonah gets to the top deck of the ship, and what ends up happening is they say, well, let's cast lots to figure out why we're in this storm, because clearly one of you guys has screwed up and God is ticked. And so let's cast lots to figure out what's going on. And so... A little bit about what lots were. They were kind of like, they could be either smooth stones or sticks that are kind of like modern day dice. And what they do is they'd like shake them up and then they'd throw them out and they would assign them to people. And if you got like the highest number, the lot fell on you, right? It means like you were it basically. And so what ends up happening in this situation is they, they shake them up, they throw the lots out and the lots fall to Jonah. And so everyone on the ship is like, whoa, Okay, well, we know why we're in this situation now. Thanks a lot, Jonah. And lots were actually a common way in the Old Testament to kind of discern what was going on with God's will. You can even see in Proverbs 16, 33, Solomon says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord, meaning that God kind of viewed casting lots in certain situations as this way of sovereignly telling you what was going on and what was happening. And so in this particular situation with Jonah, they're like, All right, we know God's ticked. We don't know why God is ticked. Let's cast some lots to figure out what's happening. Oh, it's Jonah. It's Jonah's fault. And so Jonah, who hasn't offered up any information at this point, gets brought before the captain. The captain's like, what's going on? Like, why why is this happening? And what have you done? And how do we fix this? And Jonah goes, well... Um, I'm, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the God of the Hebrews, and he told me to do something, and I didn't really listen, and so, yeah, this is actually all my fault. And so, so the captain's like, you can imagine being the captain in that situation, like, really? You paid passage on this boat knowing that God was ticked off at you? Wait, thank, like, thanks a lot for dragging all of us into this. This is great. Okay, he says, okay, well, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to fix this? And Jonah's like, you, you gotta throw me over the side of the boat. Like, I, I don't have any other answers. Like, as long as I'm on this boat, it's trouble for you guys. You better throw me overboard. And now what's really interesting is the crew of the ship doesn't want to do that. And so they, they start trying to row back to shore. They, they try to get out of the storm, and they realize nothing is helping them. And so what they end up doing is they do. They throw them overboard. And before they do that, they kind of stand before God. They say, don't kill us over this man Declare us not guilty for throwing him overboard and killing him because we know he's going to die because we're out in the middle of the Mediterranean. There's nowhere for him to go. He's going to drown, right? Forgive us for throwing him overboard, and then they offer a sacrifice to God and throw him overboard, and guess what? Storm stops, and they're safe. Now Jonah, (laughs) meanwhile, is treading water in the middle of the Mediterranean Guys, he's dead, okay? I don't know if you guys know anything about the Mediterranean Sea. It's fairly large, okay? He's 
not going to be able to swim to shore. Okay? And as he's laying there in the water, right, he knows he's done. He's like, man, I could have gone to Nineveh, and I chose to do this, and I guess this is my punishment for what's going on. Right? So he's resigned to the fact that he's dead. And then look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That God himself sovereignly controlled a fish. I don't know what kind it was. You, know, you guys can tell me whatever you want. It could be a whale, sperm whale, some sort of other sea creature. That's what the language, the language there just means literally sea creature. But that God sovereignly appointed, chose, assigned, right, this fish to swallow Jonah in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea when he was doomed to death. Now, even in the midst of this, right, what would you still be thinking if you were Jonah? Like, oh great, I'm still dead. I'm just going to die because this fish is gastric acid or whatever else is in his stomach is eventually going to kill me as I get passed through the digestive system. And so he's, he's still resigned to the fact that he's dead, not knowing that God is sovereignly orchestrating all of these circumstances and situations to put his power and faithfulness on display. Look at chapter 2 as we keep going. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And so, as he went into the water and then is swallowed by the fish, Jonah knows he's dead. And Sheol is a, a term, right, that you see throughout the Old Testament to describe the land of the de dead or the realm of the dead. He's like, hey, I, I'm, I'm heading to the realm of the dead. I'm done. I know I'm at the gates. I'm on the verge of death. And he cries out to God and is saved. Because look at what he says there. He says, out of the belly of, she of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. He's saying this in his prayer. Right now, most of us in this situation, as Jonah would have thought, okay, I've just been swallowed to die in a fish instead of in water. Yet what does Jonah realize? God's rescued me. I was going to drown. I was about to die. And out of Sheol, you have rescued me and had this fish swallow me. God has used this situation, as terrible as it is, to snap Jonah awake at what Jonah was trying to be told from the outset. Hey, look, I have something important to happen in Nineveh, and you're a part of that. You need to go. You can't, you can't pick and choose who I love and want to rescue. You can't pick and choose right, what I ask for you to do if you're going to serve me. Right? So many of us want to do like, kind of like the buffet of religion where we pick and choose which parts of the Bible we like and which parts we don't like. Right? It's kind of like, if you guys that know anything about Thomas Jefferson, he actually took the Bible and he's like, I don't like, really like the parts with miracles, so I'm going to cut those out. And, I'm gonna cut, and then he put it back together, and he had a Bible that was like a third the size of a normal Bible. And that way he could pick and choose what he liked out of the Bible, but then the rest, whatever, is like, kinda, I guess it was kind of like for him, like the first version of a choose-your-own-adventure story, right? That he picked and chose like what he liked out of the Bible. And that's kind of what Jonah's doing with God's faithfulness and God's love here. And God's like, nope, it's not how it works with me. Right, to know my sovereignty and to know of who I am, you don't get to pick and choose who I am loving and merciful to and who I punish for sin. And Jonah's in the belly of the whale saying, all right, God, I realize this. I get it. You saved me. You had me thrown overboard and you saved me. Right, and look at what he says in verses 3 through 6. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. 
Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look, again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head as the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. God, I was dead. You had me thrown in the water so that you could save me again and wake me up. You have orchestrated all of this. And when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He basically is praying, God, you saved me. I get it. I'll go to Nineveh. <laughs> I, I get it now. Whatever you want, I'll go and I'll take care of it because salvation belongs to you. It doesn't belong to me. I don't get to decide what you want done. You get to decide. I'm just along for the ride. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Kind of gross. I don't know how gross that was, but I imagine it's pretty gross, right? I mean, but he was alive, so he's pretty stoked about it, I'm sure. God sovereignly uses a fish to spit him back out on dry land. And while Jonah runs from the mission of saving Nineveh, God saves Jonah and still sends him to Nineveh. That no matter what, no matter what you can conceive of trying to stop God's will from happening, Jonah is an example of God's promises and will shining through no matter what. And it's important that we see that God is communicating that here, right? Because otherwise, this story devolves into some moralistic story of do right, do right, don't do wrong, or you'll go through hard times, and you'll go through punishment, which very much can be the case. But here's the reality of the truth of the gospel, right? None of us are promised any level of comfort. Not, not a one of us in here, by being a follower of Jesus, if you are one here this morning, has been promised some great level of comfort. As a matter of fact, that's uh, American culture speaking that to you, not the gospel, Okay? And, and one of the things that's happened in the church over the course of time, especially here in America, is we've kind of like had this issue of like marrying the ideas of American cultures and dreams into the idea of what it means to be the church, and we've kind of gotten really confused about what that means. Right? Like, when, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Right? That's why I always, when I started uh, first studying the scriptures and when I first became a believer, I... I remember sitting there thinking, why does anybody choose to follow Jesus? He basically says, hey, sign up to be killed to follow me to his, to his, his early disciples. He's like, hey, guys, all right, look, here's the deal. Um, I know you're a bunch of fishermen. You have this pretty cushy life um, out in the kind of rural area of Israel, and you're underneath Roman occupation. I know that's not ideal, but at least you're alive. Instead, why don't you start this movement claiming that I'm the Messiah and the Son of God and be killed for it? Anybody in? And like at first, like the disciples like don't understand anything. And as a matter of fact, Peter denies him at his hearing. And then what ends up happening to all those disciples? They're all killed. Right? And then if you read the Gospels closely, right, over and over again, the only thing that God promises you and I, if we are a follower of Christ, is two things. That we are forgiven and adopted as God's sons for eternity, and that we will face trial and tribulation in this life. And yet we spend our entire lives trying to instead protect ourselves and put ourselves in these comfortable bubbles of protection as Americans, right? And this is why when the outside world that doesn't know God looks at us, they're like, you're no different than me. Why, why are you claiming that you have some special revelation? We got the very thing. Like, okay, my family 
is freaking out about what's going to happen on Tuesday. I cast my vote yesterday. Guess what? No matter who I wake up to on Wednesday morning as my future president, God is still the sovereign God of creation who has seen nations, leaders, and people rise and fall over the last couple thousand years. And whether Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, or some other Joe Schmo that I have no idea who they're going to be, right, ends up being our president, because I don't understand the electoral college process. Sorry, Derek, I just don't get it. God is still in control. If God can control a fish to swallow a dude and spin him back out on land to send him to Nineveh, I doubt he's too worried about who gets the most votes on Tuesday. And instead of trying to comfortably control like we constantly do as the church or even Jonah does in this situation, why don't we sit back and look towards faithfulness instead? Because it's the better way. Right? What my family doesn't realize as they head into this momentous decision on Tuesday is if their candidate is elected, that candidate can do just as much bad and harm to the church as the candidate they don't, that they don't like and that they're worried about. Because the faithfulness of the church and the future of the church is not dictated by governments, but it's dictated by God. The same way that the future of Nineveh would not be dictated by Jonah and his decision about them as a people, but by God and his faithfulness towards them. And so guys, if the candidate you don't want to win wins on Tuesday, it's okay. Right? I mean, Arkansas beat UF yesterday. Life's still okay this morning, right? Right? I know, I know that digs deep. It's okay, right? Only one team wins the national title every year, okay? There's a, like 185,000 other teams that are upset every season. God's faithfulness will not be mocked, but instead constantly put on display. And you can either be along for the ride or be put along for the ride like Jonah but that God will not be mocked, right? God had one message to get out over the course of these four chapters, the last two of which we're, gonna, we're not even going to really spend any time in. It was this, verse 2 of chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That's it. He's not looking for, for Jonah to, to make some great council of decisions on whether Nineveh is deserving or what exactly the message is supposed to be. He just says, go to that city and tell them that their evil has come before me because I love them and they need to know it. All right? And Jonah disobeyed. And what happened to God's will? Still came to pass. Right? Now I'm in a room of 20-somethings, of, of most of you guys. Right? And the most common question that happens for those of you guys that are in senior year, right? I always love, love seniors. Because you guys work so hard and you're plowing through to get your degree and then you get to senior year and you've worked so hard towards this degree and you're like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. It's like, well, what have you been doing the last three years? <laughs> Hopefully doing something that you want to do with your life, right? And I always hear this over and over again. I'm just like, I just don't know what God's will for my life is. I just, I just need to know, right? And here's part of the reason why you're like that. You've had helicopter parents for like the last 18 years, so they've flown over at a close distance to tell you everything that you need to do. And they're, you know, they're over top, and you're like, you know, you tell them that, ah, oh, think about applying to that school. Oh, are you sure you want to do that? Do you have enough uh, volunteer hours? You make sure you volunteer enough to make sure you can get into that school. What are your SAT scores? Maybe you should take the SAT a 15th time so you can raise that score a little bit, right? And so mom and dad were hovering over you the whole time. And if mom and dad weren't hovering, you had teachers hovering over you, you know, making sure. You know, like my old high school now doesn't even have like, like graded assignments that are late anymore. 
You can literally do nothing the entire semester at my old high school and turn it in three days before the end of the semester and get an A. Right? Some of you guys are like, what? Yeah. Like the ultimate example, right, of entitlement and trying to protect people from themselves. If, if you do that in the real world, by the way, you will lose jobs immediately. Okay? But, you know, reality hits hard. Okay. And so the, the teachers are there hovering over, and then you get here, right, and you have advisors hovering over you, and you have professors hovering over you, right, to do this, do this, you, you need to make sure you do this. Oh, have you joined this club? Have you, are you in this correct society, right? And you have upperclassmen telling you all the things you need to do, right, and they're all hovering over you. And then you hit senior year, and you're supposed to have it all figured out. And then you're like, and what always happens, right, especially like when, when dealing with like sharing the gospel and doing evangelism, right, I always talk to freshmen, and freshmen are like, ah. I haven't really thought about God. Not really worried about it. Yeah, it's not a big deal. It's not really something I think about. You know, Josh is shaking his head because we've met like 15 students this semester alone like that. Okay. You meet a senior. Like, hey, let me, let me talk to you about God. Oh, does your God know what I'm supposed to do next? You're like, well, slow down, man. All right. Yes. <laughs> but he is not going to send you a text message. He might, right? But then I hear, like, I'm so afraid I'm going to mess up God's will. You are not that important. Hate to break it to you. <laughs> you are not that important. I know that your ninth, you know, nine-year-old soccer participation trophy tells you otherwise. <laughs> but you are not that important in God's grand plan for the universe. You are certainly a part of it. He certainly loves and cares about you. He certainly wants you along for the ride, as evidenced by what he did with Jonah. It's not like God woke up this morning and was like, man, Kevin woke up 15 minutes late today. How am I going to fix this day? I don't know what I'm going to do. It's not how God works. You can't mess up God's will. Because what God has willed to be done, he's going to see it through no matter what. Just like in this story. Right? The hero of this story is God because God wanted to see Nineveh repent and come to him. And guess what happens? <laughs> Look at chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, meaning it would take you three days to walk across the entire city. That's how big it was. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh, what? Believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Guys, this is the second miracle here. Nineveh had no reason to believe that something was going to happen to them. Look at how great their city is. They have this random Israelite roll into town and start preaching, in 40 days you'll be overthrown if you don't turn to God, and what happened? They repent and respond. God saves them from themselves because God is faithful to them. God's will to see Nineveh repent and come to him is not stopped by a prophet who's disobedient, a storm in the Mediterranean, distance, or wealth. That when God chose to save them, they responded. And here's the reality, right? This whole story of Jonah is about God sending a message to Nineveh so that they might respond. 
That's what it's really about. Hey, I have a message for them. Take it to them so they might respond. And yet, the biggest message God ever sent was through his son, Jesus Christ. Not, not, not a message like Jonah's, although some similarities. Jesus Christ himself, guys, was the message. He didn't come bringing words saying, repent and turn to the Lord, right, and do all these things. That was certainly part of it. But who were we turning to? We were turning to him. That Jesus spends his life doing miracles and teaching and walking around, but ultimately what he asks them to pledge allegiance to is to himself because according to John chapter 14, no one comes to the Father except through him. That his message is, hey, remember the faithfulness we've seen of God in the Old Testament? Guys like Abraham who had no children, and God said, hey, I promise you a child, and through your line, every single nation in the world will be blessed one day. I'm gonna, I'm gonna send a son. It's coming. When you look at stories like the story of David, right, and when David is promised a king whose kingdom will never end through his line, They're looking forward to that king over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And then you get to the book of Isaiah where Isaiah is saying, hey, look, that king who's coming, he's going to be a suffering servant, and he's going to die for your sins. But yet his kingdom will have no end. He's still going to be the Davidic king, and he's going to be the suffering servant at the same time. Right, that God will send him to do this. And then Jesus shows up, and he says, I'm that guy. That me, that's me. That guy you've been looking for all along, that is me. And yet, as he stood there in front of the religious leaders, and as he stands there in front of so many of us, we reject. Look at what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. This is where we're going to finish today. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. See, what the Israelites loved more than anything was having prophets that came to them to speak truth. And as Jesus communicates to these scribes and Pharisees, he says, you love the prophets. You love reading about them. You love studying their word. I'm telling you this. The prophet Jonah, who you love so much, you think was so great because of what he did in Nineveh, the sign that God is going to give you that I am the Messiah is going to be the sign of Jonah. And I'm not just some prophet. I'm something greater than a prophet. I'm the son of the living God in flesh before you. And what I've come to do is rescue you from your sin. That I've come, like Jonah to tell you to repent and believe in God, but believe something different, that God has finally made atonement in a way for you through me. That in my life, death, burial, and resurrection, you can know the Father and be forgiven for eternity. I'm God's son. I've come to die. Repent and believe in me. 
as we're going to take communion here in just a minute, right? And it's cool to see as we've studied the Old Testament throughout this fall that the, the narrative of the Old Testament is one big unfolding story of God's faithfulness to his people about the promise of him sending someone to rescue us. Hey, humanity, I created you, and something's gone wrong. Can you not see it? But I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it by sending my own son, my only son, to die as a substitution for you, for your crimes and your rebellion towards me. Might you respond to him this morning by believing in what Jesus has done for you and walking out of here this morning, not out of obedience for obedience sake, but obedience because you believe in the faithfulness of God the same way his faithfulness has been shown throughout the Old Testament and now some 2,000 years after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That God is faithful to the end, that his promises are good and true, and the promise that he gives us in Christ is the greatest of all. As you take communion, reflecting over God's own flesh and blood being poured out for you, might you take communion and thankful repentance towards him and joyful hope in seeing your life play out in the grand scheme and story of what God is doing on this earth. You can't mess up his will, but you can certainly be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can't destroy your will. There's nothing we can do or say that will destroy your purpose, which for us at the church at this point is to proclaim and make much the name of Jesus Christ. God, you said in your word in Matthew chapter 28 that the church's chief aim is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the name, them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, may that be our chief goal, our chief desire, no matter what our vocation is, no matter what season of life we're in, no matter what sin or struggles we may be walking through at any particular time, may our chief goal be to make disciples wherever you may have us be, whether that's here in Gainesville as students, whether that's here in Gainesville as employees, whether it's to move one day and be somewhere else in this country or somewhere else in the world that we are a part of the great unfolding story of declaring God's faithfulness and goodness towards you through repentance and faith in Jesus. And in the same way that the Ninevites repented and came to you, people all over this world are still coming to know you and your goodness towards us, God. May we not be ashamed of it, but may we proclaim it with power and truth. And I ask this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.